Let's pray together just now. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you're a God who speaks to us. Who tells us all that we need to know of who you are and who we are and how we might live for your glory in this world. Lord, help us today as we think on this seventh commandment. Open our hearts just now. Take away those things that that cause resistance in us to your word and your will. And we pray that we would hear you and respond obediently. Amen. Sex is inescapable in 21st century Britain. If you've watched any TV this week, lifted any newspaper or read any magazine, it's been there. Sometimes it was maybe only by subtle implication, but sometimes it was stark and in your face. Our society is submerged in sex and sexual images. It's used to grab our attention for almost anything. So advertisers will use sex to sell toothpaste and deodorant, Cars and holidays and almost anything that you can think of. The world's gone sex mad. That pervasiveness, that absolutely givenness of sexual imagery in our culture makes a command like this seem... It makes it seem a bit old hat. You shall not commit adultery. It seems hopelessly out of date like the the product of a bygone era, something positively Victorian. It might give us a bit of perspective before we we start to think in detail about the the command itself to, to understand the context in which it was given. You see, the ancient world where where Moses first heard these words was chronically immoral. The society there was unbelievably corrupt, the the nations that surrounded Israel in these times. The things that that were going on there, the kinds of things that I I just couldn't talk about in a forum like this, it wouldn't be be appropriate, wouldn't be right. Sexual promiscuity and every kind of perversion was commonplace. And yet it was into that, that vile environment that God spoke to his people and said, no adultery. And the same is true of New Testament times when we find this command being reinforced. Paul brought the, city, uh, brought the gospel to the, the city of Corinth. And that was another city that was renowned for its immorality. Uh, Corinth was like a, a byword. If you wanted to describe an immoral person, you'd call them a Corinthian. But that didn't stop Paul when he was writing to the, the people in Corinth to uphold and maintain these Old Testament standards this command. He challenged all those who had faith in Jesus Christ to adopt this same morality and to stand spectacularly in contrast to the surrounding culture. No adultery. Paul uh, reinforced it. 
I hope you can understand why I'm, I'm giving you this very quick snapshot of, of ancient history. It's to let you know that this isn't, that this command was never one that a society would take for granted. It wasn't when it was first given. It wasn't when it was reinforced. It's not that those cultures were any more supportive of this command than ours would be. So we need to quickly shed the idea that our culture is somehow uh, different and that this command therefore no longer applies to us. It applies as much as it, as it did and always will. You shall not commit adultery. That's what God said back then. It's what he says now and, and will say whatever way this world goes in the future. If you're the kind of person who appreciates dictionary definitions, then you'll be interested to know that adultery is defined as voluntary sexual intercourse between a married person and someone other than his or her lawful spouse. Adultery is breaking your marriage vows and being unfaithful to your marriage partner or else it's being somebody who causes somebody else to do that. Since adultery is defined in relation to marriage, I thought a good place to start just for a few moments is to remind ourselves of the biblical idea of marriage. What is a marriage in God's eyes? Flick with me for a second, an easy passage to find, Genesis chapter 2. Right, right at the beginning of our Bibles. Genesis 2, verse 24. This is a, a part of the creation account. God is explaining about why he made male and female. And he gives us this picture of human life into the future. Genesis 2 verse 24, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. Notice very quickly three key elements here. There's a leaving required. When a man and a woman leave the familiar territory of their parental homes, they start something that's new something that's independent of that family that went before, a totally new social unit has been created in that moment. So there's a leaving, there's a uniting. A marriage is a merging of every aspect of this man and this woman's life. It's a wholesale commitment to share life in its entirety together. There's to be no area where the two are not open to one another. It's a leaving, it's a uniting, and then it's a becoming one flesh. A marriage and the sexual activity that's a part of it creates a, a deep, deep unity. And it's a unity that's so profound that the Bible is willing to call these people no longer really two individuals, but somehow they've become one. There, there's something deep and profound about a marriage and the, the sexual activity that, that comes with it. If we keep this biblical framework, those three elements before us, then we see that any time any of those elements goes missing and aren't held together, then something has gone wrong. 
So the becoming one flesh belongs to the leaving and the uniting. Sex is for those who have left all others behind and who have irrevocably committed themselves to another. That's why sex outside of marriage is a second best. And that's why God warns against adultery. I'm going to spend the next few moments giving some general advice about how we might avoid sexual immorality. We're going to come at the question from two different angles. First of all, how to avoid sexual sin in general. And then we'll come back to it in another direction. And that is how we could affirm marriages. So first of all, how how do we avoid sexual immorality in general? First of all, beware of the danger. The moment I stand here and say, it'll never happen to me, is the moment I open a huge door into my heart and soul and become vulnerable. Sexuality, history tells us that it's powerful enough to trip up presidents, politicians, princes, and preachers. Throughout history, we see people who have everything in the world going for them, throwing it all away for one moment of sexual gratification. Beware of the danger. Secondly, see through the lies. What do I mean by that? Sexual immorality nowadays is dressed up in very, very soft language. So we talk about having a fling or a bit of a romp or some fun on the side. Some even call it a romance. We're better to call it what it is, immorality and adultery. Those are better words. Thirdly, remember that sex, like all idols, never delivers what it promises. I was reading in one of the books to to prepare for today, and I thought the guy made a very good point. He talked about how sex promises different things to different people. When you're a teenager, sex promises maturity and fulfillment. As though if only I were sexually active, then I would have made it. I would be fully grown as an adult. When you're lonely, sex promises closeness and companionship. If you're bored, it offers excitement. If you're hurt, it offers comfort. If you want to be intimate with someone, sex offers intimacy. But outside of the context of marriage, it never fully delivers any of these things. Because sex without commitment delivers guilt, emptiness, hurts, and sometimes despair that that will be with us for years as they play themselves out in the rest of our lives. Sex, remember, is an idol that never delivers what it promises. Fourthly, remember that sexual temptation is not irresistible. 
We live in a culture that has deified the sex drive. It's made a god of it. You couldn't possibly resist it or, or stand up to it. The, the, the mantra is something along the lines, if the urge takes you, then you've got to indulge the urge. That's simply not true. We aren't animals. Wrong desires of all sorts can be fought and defeated. It's a big, big lie to say that there's no point in trying. At the moment, I'm going to come to talk about how we can strengthen our marriages to help them be be resistant to adultery. But before we do that, I want to recognize the possibility and, and the likelihood that some here have already failed with this commandment. Whenever we take seriously what we read in Matthew chapter 5 and Jesus' definition of what it is to commit adultery, then it's a widened interpretation that I would suggest draws a lot of us in. Jesus says in Matthew 5, we read it a moment ago, anyone who looks at a woman or a man lustfully has already committed adultery with him or her in his or her heart. Friends, none of us is without sin. Sexuality is one of the great areas of brokenness in all of our lives. So these commandments, week by week, they show us our need of God's mercy and of his grace. But I don't want you to despair. I want to point you to one of the the most powerful stories in the Gospels, um, recorded for us in John chapter 8. The religious leaders dragged a a woman before Jesus, a woman who'd been caught in the act of adultery. That's what it says. Makes you wonder what kind of religious leaders there were in those days that they caught people in the act of adultery, but don't go there. They dragged her out before Jesus, treated her as an object in all her shame and all her guilt, And for him it was a test. They wanted to see whether Jesus would stick with the Old Testament law that said that there's a death penalty for adultery or whether he'd be lenient and therefore disobey the law of Moses. Jesus didn't do anything immediately. He crouched down and started writing in the sand with his finger. We're not told what it is that he was writing it. I don't know, was it the Ten Commandments? Could have been when you see what he says uh, to the woman a moment later. It would have been quite appropriate, I think, but we can't be sure. These religious leaders kept pestering Jesus for an answer. Jesus, what are you going to do with this woman caught in adultery? And Jesus turned and he looked at them and he said, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And after that, they all, to a man, silently shuffled away in defeat. And Jesus turned to the woman and he said, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. 
Neither then do I condemn you. Jesus said, Go and sin no more. Two things. Jesus chooses not to condemn, but to offer a new start. And he tells her to sin no more. Jesus still says the same thing to any one of us caught in a sexual sin or any other kind of sin. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. We'll take the last few moments to think about how we might strengthen our marriages to help them resist adultery. J. John talks about how to affair-proof your marriage. Let me offer you three R's. Respect. Love is built on a foundation of mutual respect. So Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 that a man must love his wife and that the wife must respect her husband. Respect is vital. Why is that? Well, the alternative is is contempt. Once there's contempt in a marriage, then it's almost inevitable that we'll be drawn into those kinds of, of conversations. We'll find ourselves looking into someone else's eyes and we'll find ourselves saying to ourselves, I don't get this kind of respect at home. When we no longer respect our, our husband or our wife, or when we have a, a strong sense that they no longer respect us, we have blown this marriage open to anything that comes If you're not yet married, could I offer you a bit of advice? Never ever, don't even dream of marrying someone who you don't respect totally in their person. Forget about how good looking they are, how charming they are, how funny they are, how wealthy they are, and any of those other things that seem important. If you don't respect a person, don't even consider committing yourself to them. Respect. A second way in which we can keep our marriage strong is to take responsibility. Rather than being the kind of husband who, who fixes, gives, gives out blame being the kind of husband who who takes responsibility rather than fixing blame to fix the problem. It takes work, all sorts of different kinds of work to make marriages successful. It's not just an emotional thing. It takes an act of the will as well as of the heart. One example I thought of is, is to take responsibility for spending time together. 
One recent poll showed that the average married couple spends less than 10 minutes per day in conversation. People talk nowadays about quality time. I, I don't believe the lie. Quality time is usually an excuse for little quantity of time. What about quantity of quality time? What about making that the goal of our marriages? Don't simply allow your lives to drift apart. Take responsibility for your marriage and resolve that it's going to work and that you will work to make it work. A third way to a fair proof for marriages is to keep romance alive. God is pro-sex. We saw that earlier in the Genesis passage. Sex is a wedding present that God gives to a man and a woman uh, when they come together in marriage. At many times in its history, the church has, has, has made a mess of this. Sex has become something to be ashamed of, although it was a, a dirty second best to a pure spiritual life. That's not how God sees it. Elaine Storkey, the English philosopher and theologian, says a couple in marriage is called to worship God as much in their truthful erotic sex as by their prayers for each other. Now that's provocative. There's a, a saying, a well-worn phrase, the couple that prays together stays together. Storkey's suggesting an adaptation the couple that prays together and has sex together stays together. If you're not sure of the biblical foundations for her argument, have a look at Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 sometime. And you'll see that she's not far off being. Respect your wife or your husband. Take responsibility for your marriage and keep romance alive. Three good steps to a fair proofing your marriage. I want to wrap this up in a way that I often do, and that is by rooting it in discipleship to Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 5.25, Paul says to married couples, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Paul says the unfailing love of God for his people, the, the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ demonstrated on Calvary, this is the model, the only model for how a husband is to love his wife and a wife to love her husband. Folks, there's a reason, finally, why I don't want to be involved in adultery. It's because it won't make me more like Jesus. It'll make me a lot less like him. Paul makes the point that Christian marriages are to be the place where, where the faithfulness of God is on display for the world to see. Actually, that holds true whether we're married or not. If we're followers of Jesus Christ, our lives 
are to be the place where the character of God is on display for the world to see. God's faithfulness. This quality that he has of never deserting the ones whom he loves. Can I just point something out for you? Faithfulness is not sexy in Britain in 2011. It's regarded as old hat and old school. Somebody who will limit their options by a commitment they've made. We're constantly told that there's a new thing that we must trade up. Trade up our TVs and our cars. And by implication, it's okay to trade up your partner too. When somebody younger, more exciting, more attractive comes along, it's the most natural thing in the world to go the next step. And all of it is entirely and in stark contrast to our faithful God. There's nothing of God in that. Folks, sometimes we wonder how you can be a Christian and make an impact in the world that you live in. We, we live in a Christian country. There's a sense in which what goes on here doesn't feel all that different from what goes on around. Can I offer you this as one place where we could shine like lights in a dark world? And that's to be faithful people. Faithful in our marriages faithful in in our community and in the commitments and relationships we keep with each other. As we're faithful to one another in our marriages and right here in the church, we become a place where people can see God. The character and quality of God. Folks, we began this morning by talking about adultery, but we've ended up talking about God's faithfulness. And that's great. Because faithfulness is the Christian answer to how we avoid adultery. We grow in likeness to Jesus Christ. We wouldn't dream of deserting a person whom we've committed ourselves to. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are his disciples. We're his apprentices. We're learning from Jesus how to be like Jesus. This finally is why we won't commit adultery. We love our wives and our husbands the same way that Jesus loved the church. And gave himself for her. Let us pray. Father God, we live in a world that turns all things upside down. The worst of things is presented as the best of things and the most exhilarating and exciting. Your best and most beautiful gifts 
are made to look old and tired. Lord, will you come today and enter our hearts and our minds and and give us a clarity of vision. Show us the beauty and glory of what you have for us in faithful friendships and marriage relationships. Show us that everything else is a poor second best. And even then, Lord, where we're broken and where we've failed, 